The following content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Always Another Way podcast. My name is Marina Sprocky Spriggs, and I am your host. Um, I have a master's in professional counseling. I am the Ippy Award-winning author of Stop Looking for a Husband, Find the Love of Your Life, A Nasty Divorce, A Kid's Eye View. I write positive divorce advice for the HuffPost, and I'm trained in clinical hypnosis. And this podcast speaks to out-of-the-box thinkers, and it's for those who hear the call of hope and always another way. And if you're very rigid and set in your beliefs, this is probably not your cup of tea. However, you should note, taste can and do change. And today, um, you know, I don't know if you're somebody that thinks about dying or not. You know, maybe depending on what age you are, um, if these things come around, um, and, you know, I guess I don't like to think about it and probably most people don't, but just sometimes maybe like in the existential way, like I like to think about, oh no, what if I only have like this much time left? How am I going to use my time? Or, you know, what do I want my purpose to be, my legacy, things like that. But as we get older and all of those of us and you that are lucky enough to live a long, healthy life, it is going to come to an end one day just because it does. And maybe you know, or maybe you don't know, but you do have options. Or maybe it's something because a lot of people don't like to talk about it. They don't like to think about it. And then you maybe end up in a little bit of a pickle later. So um, I'm here to tell you that you are in control of your medical choices. And my guest is Dr. Sam Harrington. He is the author of At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life, and we had him on a couple months ago with a very, very informative talk about his book. And today we're going to bring him back on because there is so much more to talk about from just the theoretical, but into the more practical. So I want to tell you a little bit about Dr. Sam Harrington. He grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, an honors graduate of Harvard College and the University of Wisconsin Medical School. He practiced internal medicine and gastroenterology for more than 30 years in Washington, D.C., there, he served on the Board of Trustees of Sibley Memorial Hospital, a member of the Johns Hopkins Health System, and the former Hospice Care of DC. As a clinician in private practice, Sam served a wide range of patients from the indigent to those working at the highest levels of government. As a medical staff leader, he worked to improve the quality and advance patient safety. So welcome to the show again, Dr. Sam Harrington. Uh, Marina, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to speaking with you again. Yeah, great. So we um, we talked about quite a bit, and it was super informative last time, but I know there's just so much more because it's not really a widely talked about um, subject, you know, or, and, and then other than your book, just not a lot of places where you can get good information like this. So I'm just going to kind of let you start and bring us in, you know, from your father's vision, and we'll just kind of go down the list of you know, things that people need to know. Okay. Well, 
for anybody who listened before, I will repeat the, uh, or those who hadn't listened, I will uh, start by saying that my father, uh, my father expressed a vision to me and my sisters when we were discussing repairing an abdominal aortic aneurysm, uh, a blood vessel that was large enough to be threatening to rupture and uh, that would be a fatal event. And yet, and at age 88 and in good health, he surprised us when he said something to the effect of, Sam, why would I want to fix something that is going to carry me away the way that I want to go quickly and decisively? And uh, that was an informative vision of how he was thinking. And in a sense, that was the beginning of what's called the hard conversation, end of life discussions. But he had, of course, what's called an advanced uh, directive uh, in place. That's a written uh, a series of papers, sometimes referred to as a living will. And so I thought I would discuss how advanced directives work today uh, and how a vision fits into the process. Uh, so there, the overall concept of advanced directives is falls under the umbrella of something called advanced care planning. And it consists of uh, several uh, factors. It consists of the identification of a healthcare proxy or power of attorney. That's the person who speaks for the patient when the patient can't speak for themselves. And to designate that person is a legal undertaking uh, that requires some paperwork, usually with a lawyer. Uh, then there is the living will, which is uh, another series of documents that outline the patient's wishes. And then there is uh, every conversation that uh, takes place that includes end of life thinking, such as the conversation my father uh, and my sisters and I had about his aortic aneurysm. And all of these have to come together uh, to help uh, patients achieve their end-of-life wishes. Now, the, my book relates almost exclusively to elderly patients because I think it's important that elderly patients do not be, are not subjective to futile care. But some of the comments I make today would pertain to younger patients. But keep in mind that I'm really focused on uh, elderly patients, people over the age of 65, according to the CDC, and I'm over 65, but really uh, people who are over 85 uh, or 75 with a chronic illness and people uh, and the children who are helping them make decisions. Uh, so in choosing a healthcare proxy, the most common thing is to uh, select somebody in the family, usually, uh, usually a spouse or if uh, if no spouse is uh, alive, then uh, the oldest child or some member of the family with medical uh, knowledge. But the most important factor in my mind in choosing a proxy is to choose somebody who is uh, can speak with the patient and understand the patient's wishes and then translate those to the family so that there's a consensus in the family. Uh, because even if uh, because a family that works together is more likely to have uh, the, the elderly patient's uh, wishes understood and achieved. And we have to keep in mind that 
80 or 90 percent of elderly patients express a preference to die at home as quietly as possible, and yet 60 percent of elderly patients die in hospitals and institutions because they haven't made uh, the proper plans to uh, be prepared to say no to hospitalization at the appropriate time. Wow. So let me ask, if you have no plans, then you're just kind of at the mercy of what they're going to do. If you Once you go to the hospital for um, any reason, uh, one tends to, treatment is almost always initiated and it is harder to stop treatment uh, than to avoid starting it. And once treatment is initiated, there's a momentum to it uh, that carries the day. And patients who think they're going to go to the hospital for something brief or because their caregivers are frightened that something uh, treatable has happened, uh, they get to the hospital and treatment is started and frequently the patient is too weak to speak for themselves and their proxy has to step up to the plate. I see. But the goal is to avoid that if possible through better decision making. And so when my, for example, uh, when my father advised us about his vision of dying quickly and suddenly from a ruptured aneurysm, uh, there was, that was a naive comment on his part, but it informed us, uh, myself and my sisters, that uh, we were to seek out if we saw another similar opportunity where he could receive palliative medications and die quickly and comfortably, uh, then we were to take that opportunity and not let him um, endure prolonged treatments and prolonged debility. Uh, so, it, and we have to keep in mind that what the proxy says or what the patient says is, is supersedes anything that's ever been written. Uh, if they say it at the time of treatment. So if a patient had said, I, I, I don't want a feeding tube, and then at the time of treatment, they change their mind and say, I do want a feeding tube, uh, or the proxy says, I want this my parent to have a feeding tube, then that is what takes place. Ah, oh, I see. And, be, and because sometimes people think that means, well, if the proxy or the patient speaks and, that, and their final decision is final, uh, what does the paperwork have to do with this? Why do we have to have a living will? And there are several reasons to have a living will that are critically important. Uh, legal people, lawyers look at a living will and say, well, the living will will be used in case of a legal arbitration. If the hospital uh, takes one position about caring for a patient, and the patient's family takes another position, uh, the, uh, li the living will will be the final arbiter as based on the patient's wishes is what, will ha what should happen. And so a judge uh, in a courtroom might adjudicate that or a doctor in a corridor might make the decision. But that's a very rare um, situation compared to all the other times when uh, people are in the hospital and need uh, emergency care. And so under those circumstances, uh, doctors don't parse the living will. They treat the patient until uh, they have time to pause and then consider what the living will says. So when a patient comes in, if the family is uh, in consensus to say, okay, make 
make her comfortable. This has happened. We don't want aggressive treatment. Please make my mother comfortable. Uh, the doctors will do that. If the family is divided, if the proxy says make my mother, make this woman comfortable, and the family member says, no, no, you have to treat her aggressively too, you have to save her life, uh, then the doctors will be in conflict. And even though the proxy has said simply make her comfortable, the doctors are likely to delay uh, that uh, comfort care and promote treatment until an agreement can be uh, reached between all parties. Um, so it's important, again, to have a uh, to have the living will to kind of adjudicate that, but it's more important not to get in that position and to have everybody agree in principle. Right. The, the other two reasons to have a living will are that it serves as the foundation for the discussions that occur uh, between family members and the patient and and doctors. Uh, and so uh, if, if you were to download, let's say, the typical state, uh, you're in Texas, I think, Texas, I'm in Maine. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, if I download this, the Maine state living will, uh, it, which is considered adequate, it comes up with three questions and two scenarios. The two scenarios are um, what to do in the case of a uh, persistent vegetative state where the person's uh, partially brain dead, but their, uh, their brain stem is still keeping them breathing and their heart pumping. Do that, does that person want life support? Does that person want a feeding tube? And the other scenario is what to do if a person is terminally ill as dictated by two physicians or as determined by two physicians. And does again, does the patient want life support as long as possible or and or does the patient want tube feeding? Well, filling that form out takes a matter of minutes, but it's also woefully inadequate to deal with patients who have other medical illnesses and other thoughts about um, what to do at the end of a long life. Because um, some patients uh, will not will will not want to prolong their death. Other patients will not will want to hasten their death, and we have to respect that perspective also. And then, and I'll get back to that later if we have a chance. But I want to mention the the third important role of a written living will is that um, a proxy who ultimately has the decision power to uh, either figuratively or physically pull the plug, meaning end life-sustaining treatment, needs all the support that's possible to make that decision because it's, a, it's from an, an intellectual point of view, we may prepare ourselves for that, but in an emotional point of view, it's very difficult. Right. And uh, having the piece of paper uh, that everyone has discussed and that supports that decision uh, supports the decision maker. And it has been shown in medical studies that families who have well-defined um, living wills suffer less stress, less grief, less depression uh, moving toward that decision, and they suffer less stress, anxiety, grief, and depression uh, after the death. So 
it's not only good for the patient, it's good for the family. It's a gift to the family to have a good living will. Yeah, that sounds like, and especially since you said like 60% of people just end up not getting a choice. That's a very large number. There's a good reason to do that kind of stuff. Well, I, and, sure. and, very, and comparatively few people have filled out a living will uh, in America. I mean, I, some people quote as little as 30% of people have a living will. Um, and it, it's really critical that we increase that number. And uh, a few minutes ago, I said that it that the typical boilerplate uh, living will is quite uh, inadequate, and that's because it doesn't address more subtle things. Yes, it says, "Do you want a feeding tube? Yes or no? Do you want a breathing tube? Yes or no?" But it doesn't address concepts like quality of life versus quantity of life. Mm. It doesn't uh, address uh, the distinction between prolonging life and prolonging the dying process. It, it doesn't address uh, the typical boilerplate living will, doesn't address the critical understanding that patients should have that to decline treatment and to withdraw treatment are morally, legally, and ethically equivalent even though it is somewhat harder emotionally to withdraw treatment than to, to decline it in the first place. Yeah, I bet. And it, uh, and we have to remember, I, I think a living will can remind us, as in my father's case, that uh, withdrawing or declining treatment is a way to assert control at the end of a long life. And control is one of the most important things that uh, people can, the most of the important attributes of a good death or a better death. Yeah. And then where else do we kind of go from here? Yeah. Well, um, I think it's, uh, I think I'll, I'll, I'll add two more points about a living will. I think that living wills should also address uh, a transfer clause so that if a patient is, uh, stuck or is put in a hospital on an emergency basis that for moral or religious reasons doesn't want to honor that patient's living will, their agent should have uh, be guided to transfer the patient elsewhere. And it should also have a dementia clause, which most people uh, don't put in unless they have uh, dementia in the family. Oh, wow. but, but a dementia clause would allow people uh, would allow the proxy to restrict medical care as the as dementia advances, so that if a if a patient is mildly demented, they might say, "I want my proxy to make me a do not resuscitate a patient." If uh, if the patient is moderately demented and, for example, uses a guideline such as "I can't dress properly for the season" or "I put my keys in the microwave." Uh, then I want my proxy to uh, restrict antibiotics or I want to uh, advise that I want no heroic measures. And then if a patient becomes severely demented as measured by, for example, the inability to recognize their family members or being bed bound, um, then I think that um, one might say that uh, one might ask their proxy to define uh, manual feeding as a, as a medical treatment. And 
any medical treatment can be de denied or declined, I should say. So the proxy might be required to put a tray of food in front of the patient for three times a day, but not uh, put a spoon to the lips or a uh, straw to the mouth. Hmm, interesting. That kind of thinking. That's the kind of thinking that I think should go into a powerful living will. So uh, as a gift, as I say, to the to the family and to the friends who are going to be dealing with this. Right, because you wouldn't want to end up with if the person has um, dementia, and then if they say something, do, does then the doctor have to listen to their words with dementia they, if you don't have that? Not with a demented patient. Okay. The doctor then has to live. Uh, one, I, I misspoke. If a demented patient is still legally competent, yes. Okay. In the early stages of dementia, that is the case. But in the later stages of dementia, the patient cannot speak for themselves, even mm -hmm. if they can mouth words. Okay, okay. Just check it. Uh, right, <laughs> right. Um, so there are two other things that I think probably should be brought up within the construct of a discussion of advanced directives. And these fall outside of the living will, but one is a do not resuscitate status. I referred to that. And the other is something called pulsed orders. Uh, and I think pulsed orders are the single most important development in advanced directives in the last 10 years. Uh, they've been around since the late 90s, but they have not gained traction for a long time. Uh, so let me address do not resuscitate for a minute and then um, Post orders. Do not resuscitate orders are something that people should consider at an advanced age simply because uh, um, CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, is very, uh, is not very successful despite what we see on television. And it is brutal in terms of treatment because it crushes the sternum, breaks ribs in elderly patients. So in the unlikely event that a patient, an elderly patient survives CPR, uh, they will live for weeks, if not months, with broken ribs and in great pain. Uh, my father, as uh, my father decided at age 89 that he would be a do not resuscitate status, even though he was uh, seemingly healthy because uh, he understood what I just described and because he deemed that a, a, an exit strategy similar to letting his aneurysm rupture. Uh, if he collapsed from a heart attack and his heart stopped, he just didn't want to have any uh, resuscitation attempts in much the same way that if his uh, aorta ruptured, he would want uh, palliative treatment. And he saw this as a way of asserting control uh, at the end of his life and not becoming uh, dependent or uh, suffering futile treatment. Um, so pulse orders, this is, this is uh, critical. Uh, pulse orders, are, are, um, that's an acronym for Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. And the difference between a pulsed order and a an advance, and a living will is that a living will is aspirational. Uh, a living will is what the patient wants, but it's not signed as an order by a doctor, whereas a pulsed order is signed as an order by the patient's primary doctor so that uh, patients who are in a sort of a, a limbo 
That is to say, patients who are uh, either nursing home bound or home bound, they suffer from the advanced age and a chronic illness uh, and rely, uh, but they're not, not sick enough to benefit by or be allowed into hospice care. These, this group of patients uh, might want to avoid heroic measures. So if a nursing home patient uh, has a stroke and uh, goes uh, and is taken to the hospital for treatment, uh, if they have signed pulsed orders in advance after discuss, be, discussing it with their doctor, they can say, I've had a stroke. The pulsed orders can indicate in the, in the uh, event of a stroke, make this patient comfortable treat their stroke, but do not place a feeding tube, do not place a breathing tube. These are restrictions that should not be done. And because they're written as an order, uh, the emergency room doctor who receives the patient and the intensive care unit doctor will not immediately introduce that kind of aggressive treatment. They will immediately start a supportive treatment and then discuss things with the family. So they, the pulsed orders are a way of standing between uh, emergency care and uh, palliative care in that small group of patients, or not so small, in that group of patients who are sort of in a pre-hospice care situation. Um, and in Texas, I know that pulse orders are not well established. I'm going to uh, the pulsed.org website indicates that Texas is one of about 11 states or eight states that have uh, pilot programs for pulsed orders. Uh, so if you're listening in Texas and you think your parent uh, would benefit by this kind of uh, order, you have to go to your physician and inquire if they can uh, be part of this pilot program. In other states, uh, about 20, 22 states, pulsed orders are considered mature that means ah. that uh, when that every EMT in the state and every emergency room will recognize uh, these orders when a patient is brought in from home or brought in from a nursing home uh, with this order set in hand. Oh, that's and then, oh, sorry. I was no, say, I was that, that's say, interesting that you needed to like you couldn't just do it anyways with just ask a doctor to write up when it has to be go through the pulsed thing. Well, it has it right. The, the state has to. Uh, well, you know, I don't know. Maybe a doctor could do that. It, never, it hadn't occurred to me while I was in practice. The issue didn't come up. Uh, pulsed orders were not available in Washington D.C. when I was in practice, and and uh, but now uh, I think that they should be, and I I think that every phys responsible physician should be discussing this with their patients. Yeah, that's good to know. I did as not know about possible. this. Yeah. Okay, so they've got you can do the living will, the post orders, a DNR, and what are um, what are some other things, other choices that people have? Well, some people choose to hasten their death. Uh, this is comparatively uncommon. Uh, the most common approach would be. Uh, uh, simply to decline treatment. That's sort of my father's approach. Uh, another approach would be to uh, stop eating and drinking. This is uh, voluntary dehydration. Uh, we discussed that last 
uh, episode. And then another approach is to take take advantage of medical aid in dying, which is the death with dignity program that allows patients in eight states in the District of Columbia to take uh, a lethal dose of medicine. But it's quite a complicated um, process. It's actually, I shouldn't say it's complicated because it's, it's pretty straightforward, and yet it's complicated enough that comparatively pe- few people actually avail themselves of that. Uh, in the District of Columbia, the, uh, I was uh, in communication with the officials uh, monitoring this in DC, and after 18 months in DC, of, of, of the availability of medical aid in dying, not a single patient had signed up for it. Oh, wow. So uh, that's... Is there just of, a lot of hoops to get into it? Like, do you have to qualify like in a certain way? There um, are a few, there are some hoops, but the vast majority of people would already be in hospice or approaching hospice care uh, under those circumstances. So the general requirements for, uh, and this is not this is a general summary for the eight states, is that two physicians have to certify that patients are terminally ill. Uh, The patient has to have a waiting period between physician uh, consultations uh, and receiving the medication so that they have the chance to change their mind. Mm. And when they receive the medication, they are allowed to take it at any time they wish uh, so they can take it home with them, but then they have to uh, then they have to be mentally competent and uh, physically capable of self-administration. So uh, many people uh, will start the application process and then become get to the point where they can't, aren't mentally competent themselves, mm. in which case they can't take it, or they physically can't take it. And I think that uh, I, I was very interested when I started looking into this, that in Oregon, where medical aid and dying has been available for uh, more than 20 years, less than one half of 1% of people to who, for whom this is available take actually take the medication. Um, so if 10,000 people in Oregon are dying of a chronic illness uh, and could avail of themselves of this opportunity, 39 out of 10,000 actually do, which I find is a stunningly low figure and says to me a couple of things. First of all, uh, if you want to use it, you have to think about it even harder than simply writing a living will and doing the things that I've recommended and uh, that the will to live Uh, is so great that people delay the process so long that they really um, can't physically lift the medication to their mouths or aren't competent at that point, which I understand. That's not a criticism. I just think it's an interesting observation that people fight for that right uh, and then... Don't take it when it comes down to it. (laughs) Then can't use it. Uh Yeah. So. Yeah, that's very, that's very, very interesting. I've always wondered that kind of too about, um, you know, maybe I guess I didn't know that many states that they had that option, but then that's interesting that just nobody 
took up on it in in DC too. So yeah, maybe it's when taken. the when the rubber hits the road, like you know, good to talk in theory, but then when you're faced with it, you know, I wonder if there's still like that last hope. Like I don't know, maybe I'll just it'll turn yeah. around. <laughs> maybe I'll just get better. Yeah. Uh, I, and who know we we never know how we'll approach our own deaths. We I mean I I recognize that uh, I have studied it and thought about it a lot, but who knows how I will face my own uh, crises or how my family will face them with me. All we can do is the best we can to try and uh, to try and make things work out. Yeah, and so what if you, if you had to give like, um, like maybe just like two more things that you think are just like important to tell people? Um, well, I think that it's important one thing I'll say is that I think that um, it's important to study one's prognosis. This is something that people ignore, people avoid. Uh, and I think that it, it really hampers the decision making. Of course, it's, it's upsetting to hear uh, that one has a certain median life expectancy. But if you don't look into that, you can't make very good decisions. When my mother was 82, she was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And uh, she left her doctor's office, my father had gone with her, and she didn't really understand uh, that she was terminally ill. Uh, and I was uh, somewhat taken aback. Now it might have been that the doctor tried to talk about it and they didn't want to hear it, uh, I don't know. But in any event, when I went out to chat with them about treatment options, I explained that her median life expectancy was uh, 10 months and uh, it was a very difficult conversation, but it, uh, but it had to be done. And uh, ultimately when she understood that, uh, she was able to say, you know, uh, I'm old and frail and uh, I'm not likely to make it to 10 months anyway with this diagnosis. That would that would be something that a younger person would achieve who could withstand more treatment. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna focus on other things in the near future and hope uh, to survive long enough to benefit there. Right, and those are good yeah. things that you would hate to like not think about that and then just kind of waste your time, you know, If you don't worrying. think, right, and doctors, as I just said, doctors tend not to, uh, look at this with a hard-edged uh, uh, focus. The, uh, there was one study that I really uh, was interested in uh, it, uh, on prognosis whereby uh, physicians were asked how long they thought their patients would live after they were accepted into hospice care. And 20% uh, of the doctors were correct, roughly you know, they thought, well, this patient will probably live three months. 20% of them were accurate. And 17% uh, were uh, pessimistic, meaning the patient lived longer than the doctor expected. I recognize that I'm a pessimist in this regard uh, I, because some of the life that people have, I think, is so difficult uh, that I feel sad for them that uh, that they're suffering so much. But anyway, I'm a, I'm a pessimist. Yeah. And then 63% of doctors thought that their patients would uh, live five months and those patients died within a month. Huh. 
meaning they were overly optimistic by a factor of five. And the, it's important for doctors to know whether they're optimists or pessimists, but it's also important for patients to understand that doctors are systematically optimistic. And if, the, if they're destined to live a month and doctors think six months or they will live five months, they're less likely to put them in, uh, offer them hospice care and they're more likely to offer them treatment that's not going to work. Uh -huh. So we, it's important to look at our prognosis and look at the, the filters through which that prognosis are offered to us. Hmm. And then I wonder that, and then you just end up with treatment and spending money that's just not going to work out anyways in the long run. Right. And, yeah. it's, and money aside, futile treatment is physically cruel and morally wrong. And if, we know we're, if we know we're treating somebody and they're not going to get better, uh, that is uh, almost criminal in my mind. Yeah, I agree. And then just quality of life, that if you could do nothing, not be in a hospital, you could spend that time doing what you want with family and friends. But once you get in there and hooked up, then things can just go sideways really quick. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Ooh, good advice. Good advice. <laughs> yes. Okay. One more or anything else? Well, I, I, I don't know. I have nothing. I, I have one more point. My, my summary is that uh, 80 to 90% of patients want to pass away comfortably at home. And if we want, if you want to help your loved one do that, you have to help them understand when to say no to hospitalization. All right. That That's sounds my that sounds great. And definitely get Dr. Harrington's book, At Peace, Choosing a Good Death After a Long Life. It is just really chock with all sorts of information, answering a lot of questions. And, and you're right, if 80 to 90%, and I think just probably everybody's like, yep, I'd like to die at home in my sleep. That sounds good. But to then talk about it and then to have so few people really do anything, you know, there is that gap there and there are many things that can be done to allow you to have that control. You know, you can't predict, but you could get closer right. to that. Exactly. Exactly. So um, if anyone wants to contact me, uh, I'm at samharrington.com and uh, the book is on Amazon and I appreciate the time you've offered, Marina. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you being on. You know where to find Dr. Harrington. And for everybody listening, you know there is always another way. <laughs>